Welcome to Extra Points, the Outsports podcast that explores extra points on lesser-known moments in LGBTQ sports history, with special guests who discuss the larger cultural issues behind each one. I'm your host, longtime cultural journalist Daniel Villarreal, and today we're discussing the 2012 film Morgan, a film about a gay wheelchair-using athlete. First, I'll talk with Stephanie Lynn Wheeler, head coach of the women's wheelchair basketball team at the University of Illinois. We'll discuss the challenges that wheelchair-using athletes face that most able-bodied people might not know about. And then, I'll chat with Andrew Gerza, the longtime queer disability podcaster about the film's sexual subplot. Let's start, though, with the description of the film from Wikipedia and its trailer. After an accident leaves him paralyzed from the waist down, Morgan Oliver, played by Leo Minaya, is first seen wallowing in a state of depression, drowning his sorrows in beer as he watches bicycle racing, the sport that at once defined his sense of purpose and drove him to his catalytic accident. He meets Dean Kagan, played by Jack Kessie, who helps him along the way, and a romantic relationship develops between the two. Once Morgan knows about the New York Haven cycle race, he decides to take part in the race with the help of Kagan and sponsorship from the local bike shop. Most of the film's drama stems from Morgan's anger, fear, and shame in coming to terms with his new disability, and in his disagreements with his mother over his financial and care needs following his accident. There's also an ongoing subplot exploring Morgan's sexual abilities and his sex life following his injury. Here's the trailer. The counselor says that he's in denial, that he hasn't accepted what's happened. But if I just want to be the same old me that I was before... I'm Morgan. I'm just afraid that that I can't do the things that you want because I can't. Let's figure it out together. You never told me what happened. Last year at the base, my tires snagged the guy in front of me and we both went down. Do you think it's changed you? I was a winner. I think you can still compete. Thinking about doing the race. I'd be glad to sponsor you again. You just like old times. Have you lost your mind? I just need to learn how to race in a wheelchair. Morgan, it's not good. I want you to quit. This is serious. You have to know when to say when. What if something happens to you? What if you get hurt? Who's gonna take care of you, me? I can win. I know it. Directed by Michael D. Akers and co-written by Akers and Sandenberg, Akers said Berg interviewed other gay male wheelchair users to help come up with the script and the plot. In an interview with San Diego Gay and Lesbian News, Akers said, quote, The number one challenge was authenticity and sensitivity. We wanted to stay completely truthful about the experience, so we had to rearrange our home, adjust blocking, change dialogue, etc. to keep from cheating. Ultimately, though, there was too much information about the life of a paraplegic to share, so we had to draw the line between making a documentary and making a romantic drama. There are certain medical and health aspects that we decided not to cover, mostly because it did not fit the tone or direction of the film. The story is about self-acceptance, and the true demon of the film is Morgan's drive to avoid dealing with his circumstance at almost all costs. So, to understand a little bit more about the challenges facing real-life wheelchair-using athletes, we talked to Stephanie Lynn Wheeler, 
the bisexual woman who has served as the head coach of the women's wheelchair basketball team at the University of Illinois for the last 11 years. Here's our interview, and please excuse the sound quality as we conducted the interview over the phone. I'm really kind of impressed. I didn't even know that any universities had wheelchair teams. Is, is that a common thing? or? Um, no, <laughs> it's, it's not surprising that you haven't heard of it. Um, so we're not technically an NCAA sport, so you know, schools aren't required at this point to offer um, any kind of disability sport. Mm-hmm. So it's it kind of exists in different places on different college campuses. So in, on some campuses, they're like a club sport. Um, some campuses, they actually are in their athletic department. Um, at Illinois, we're actually in an academic department. Um, we're under um, our College of Applied Health Sciences because we're in our disability resources, which is under Applied Health Sciences. So um, we're kind of governed in a lot of different ways. And I think that's a direct result of us not being an NCAA sport. And in a given season, about how many other teams will y'all take on? So on in our women's college division, we only have five teams right now. Okay. Um, so we'll play those five teams multiple times at different places around the country. And then we'll supplement games um, by playing um, some men's teams that are like in a, a like a middle, not the highest division, but the kind of second tier division mm-hmm. um, in our league. We'll play some men's teams and then we'll play some um, women's club teams who, you know, they're not affiliated with the university. They're just kind of club teams around the country. So we'll supplement our schedule that way too. But it's, I would say we play about 75% of our games against um, other women's college teams. And then if you can give me a rough ballpark of these other teams, like these club teams or these kind of mm-hmm. other male teams, roughly how many teams total does that does that group consist of? Um, let's see. This season, I would say about that's six other teams. Okay. Okay. Yeah, um, I would say six other teams. Right on. And, and, and have you done other sports, uh, 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 like as, as a wheelchair-using athlete? Yeah, um, when I was in college – um, I actually, I did a little bit of road racing, um, and I did, um, a couple of marathons mm-hmm. and I did that for about a year and I realized it was not for me Right. <laughs> and I decided to stick with, to only be a one sport athlete and stick with basketball. Cause I played, um, basketball for Illinois um, when I was in college. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for one year of that time, I, I tried out a little road racing and it was great for cross training and I got faster on the court, but it was not my thing. (laughs) So something I want to ask you about is in the film, they show uh, that Morgan, uh, the wheelchair user, he wants to do a sort of a road race and he has to go and see his doctor and basically get medical clearance. And his doctor is like, you know what? I, I think it might be really hard on you. Try to take it easy. When he later experiences chest pains, he goes back to his doctor and his doctor's like, yeah, this is kind of what I was afraid of. You can't do it. And then Morgan then mm-hmm. goes Morgan then goes to a race organizer and says, "Hey, my doctor's worried about me, but I still want to do it." And the race organizer's like, "Yeah, no, if your doctor says no, we can't allow you to do it." I'm wondering, mm-hmm. is this sort of a normal process for for wheelchair using athletes to have to get sort of medical clearance before they can even participate? Or is that something uh, no. that all athletes do? <laughs> um, you know what? I I think that's a it's a bit of a complicated question. So, I would say Yes, in a sense that if it is, you know, you're a pretty new injury and you haven't been, um, 
like if it's only been a few weeks since your injury or if you're in a really short period of time after your injury, um, you know, there will be a certain clearance process that you would have to go through with your doctors, especially if you have some kind of like spinal cord injury or something that requires some rehab, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of that, um, there really is no medical clearance process that you would have to go through other than like, you know, running or stand-up athletes would they have to get a physical, right, to be mm-hmm. cleared. So mm-hmm. I would say to have to be cleared just because you're disabled mm-hmm. um, is not necessarily true okay. um, in the grand scheme. So I would say post-injury, if you're really, really not too far out of being injured, mm-hmm. there will be some kind of process where your doctor says, okay, you know what, your back is stable enough to be able to take contact if you wanted to go play a contact sport, right? Like we wouldn't put them into something that's heavy contact a month after they've broken their back, mm-hmm. but they can certainly get up and move, right? Like they can push around and they can be active. So I don't know if that kind of answers your question and makes sense. It does. Um, yeah. So there's, there's kind of a timeline, but like for like, let's just say me, for example, I've been injured for over 30 years. Um, I don't have to go get clearance from my doctor if I wanted to go out and participate in a race or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it seems so much that in media depictions of disabled athletes, um, we kind of get subjected to what's commonly called inspiration porn, which is, you know, we, we view the um, their disability as tragic and we're supposed to um, know kind of the gory details about what happened. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it, it seems like on one hand, those details might be considered relevant and maybe mm-hmm. even interesting uh, and, and, and representative, you know, so that people understand. And on another hand, it also seems like those might be a bit exploitative or even unnecessary. How do you feel? Mm-hmm. How do you feel when people inquire with athletes about kind of the roots or causes of their disability or treat it as if they're so inspiring? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, you know, I do think, and, and this is, I do want to say too that like, I think as for, for all of us that, that are a part of um, a more marginalized community, we can only kind of speak for ourselves and, um, you know, speak about our experiences. I can speak a little bit in generality because I do have a lot of experience with other people with disabilities, but, you know, I do want to preface everything with that. Um, but I would say you kind of hit it on the head as far as like, um, you know, for me personally, like my disability and my injury is a big part of who I am. It's a big part of my identity. And so you know, that is something that I will talk about, that I was injured in a car accident, you know, that it did impact my life in in these other ways. But then I also want you to tell the story about, you know, me being an athlete. I don't want the focus of the story or of whatever it is to be pity or exploitive because, um, you know, I happen to use a wheelchair, right? Or I happen to have to do things a little bit differently. And so I think there's a balance and there's a fine line between, you know, you're kind of reporting on the facts of the thing. Like, it is a fact. I broke my back in a car accident. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. It's something that I can't get around. Mm-hmm. But it also isn't a situation where it's like, you know, she succeeded in spite of this, right? Or, you know, like you said, how inspirational is it that, um, I'm going to use just an example that she got out of bed and can get her chair out of her car and that, you know, she's <laughs> going to school and playing sports. So, I do think that there is a balance between you report the truth and you report someone's story because it it is a big part of who we are and it has been a big part of getting us to where we are, Mm -hmm. but doing it in such a way that, yeah, it's not 
exploiting the disability or it's not exploiting the person or kind of doing that inspiration porn thing saying that like, you know, I succeeded because I have a plucky smile and a great attitude. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, I think that some of these stories end up coming, uh, out as a result because maybe not many reporters or readers, uh, have, uh, close, uh, intimate friendships or relationships with people with disabilities. Um, I was wondering for a kind of my education and that of our audience, what are some barriers that people with disabilities face when trying to participate in sports or even just training and exercising for them? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot. Um, you know, I would say one is definitely transportation. So, you know, I thought some of your questions here and some of the prompts for them, like kind of knowing the barriers just in general for people in disabil- with disabilities to exist in society, you can sort of put those right on the list for ones that prevent us from being active in sport. So I would say one, transportation. Um, sometimes we aren't able to get either our own personal transportation or reliable public transportation to get to where we need to go, whether it's a health and wellness center, um, whether it's to a local gym, uh, because um, they're having a wheelchair basketball practice or a wheelchair rugby practice or open gym for tennis or whatever it might be. But we don't have affordable transportation to be able to get there or someone that can drive us, right, if we don't drive ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I would say transportation is a big one. I think where transportation really comes into play is because quite often there aren't um, – disability sport programs or fitness programs um, close to everyone that needs them. Mm. So, for example, I played wheelchair basketball growing up. I grew up in North Carolina, and I grew up um, about as close to the Virginia border as you could get without being in Virginia. And in order for me to go practice with my local youth team, my family had to drive me two and a half hours one way to get to practice. Yeah, so... Um, not only is transportation an issue in a sense of having actual transportation, but it's also that there's such um, a large distance sometimes between where people are located and where these these disability sport programs actually are held. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that piece of it, that sort of isolation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I think that's a big one. Um, I think the la- that, again, that leads into lack of programming, right? So... If they are so, if programs are so far and few between, that definitely speaks to a lack of programming overall. Like if, if my family had to drive me two and a half hours, that means there was only one sport program close to me, right, that I could participate in. I couldn't go to my parks and recreation district and say, hey, I want to play basketball. That I couldn't do that. Um, I think the other um, big one is equipment cost. Mm-hmm. So you've already mentioned that a lot of times um, – Disabled people are of a lower uh, socioeconomic status because it's sometimes harder to get jobs. It's harder to get affordable housing mm-hmm. um, because of your disability. Well, wheelchair sports is really expensive. Um, the equipment, um, the good equipment and the right equipment is expensive to come by and it's hard to come by. And so, you know, to play wheelchair basketball, you need a basketball chair. Um, to play tennis, you need a tennis chair. Um, you know, basically to play any of our sports, you've got to have some kind of adaptive equipment. And that equipment is expensive. Um, so that's also a big barrier to um, being able to participate. Now, 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 help me out here because, I mean, yeah. I, I'm a bit ignorant. And so I was just like, 
Oh, all you need for to play a wheelchair sport is a wheelchair. Any old wheelchair will do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, right. w- so how is, say, a, a basketball wheelchair different from just a standard hospital issue wheelchair? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, a basketball wheelchair, um, I can talk about it at a couple different levels. We'll start at kind of like the highest level when you have athletes at the college level or international level. They're going to have a, a wheelchair that's custom made to fit them as an individual. Um, that wheelchair is going to be made of a pretty light material. Some are aluminum. Some are um, uh, combinations of aluminum and titanium. Mm-hmm. Um, the wheels are going to be a little bit different. Um, they'll be a little bit sturdier. Um, I can send you some photos just so you kind of get an idea of what I'm talking about after we're done. Um, but they're just going to be of a, a quality where it fits you and only you. Um, we kind of always liken it to um, – having a pair of basketball shoes like mm. you wouldn't put on anybody else's basketball shoes to go play because they wouldn't fit right they'd slide around on your foot you wouldn't feel comfortable performing in them until your performance would suffer mm-hmm. and, so and same thing for us and how much do one of these wheelchairs typically cost like a high-end so one? at the at the top end i would say some can get up to around eight to nine thousand dollars yeah <laughs> how, how about on a more kind of downscale end Yep, I would say at the lower end, there's some pretty cheap chairs that are super heavy, but some pretty cheap chairs that I would say that run with around fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. Okay, okay. So still quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like that chair chairs for um, disability sport are designed for performance. That's the biggest difference I would say between kind of like your everyday chair. That like if you saw me. I use a chair to get around every day. It doesn't look like a hospital chair either. It's um, it's still custom made and custom designed to fit me, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily built for performance. It's built to get me around my world every day. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, adaptive equipment, whatever the equipment is, whether it's a prosthetic leg, um, arm, a wheelchair, whatever, it's designed for performance. Mm-hmm. Now, I know the equipment and prosthetics can be one part of uh, a disabled person's uh, needs or, or gear for athletics. But there also seems to be the issue of um, having a care assistant. I, I'm i not sure if all wheelchair users end up needing care assistance in order to maybe reach higher spots in their house and to do other sorts of types of training, or if they're not really needed all the time. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, they are not needed all the time. So a lot of that is determined by the type of disability that you have. Um, so, for example, most wheelchair basketball players don't need a personal care assistant. Like, we're able to travel on our own. Um, we can do all of those, like, activities of daily living on our own. Um, we're able to care for ourselves. Like, before my partner and I were together, I lived by myself and could do all my care for myself. So, um but that's just because of my injury and that I have basically full function of everything from my waist up. Mm-hmm. So I can exist without needing that care. I think when you look at some athletes who um, have a higher level of disability, um, those maybe who don't have a lot of arm and hand function might need a level of care. Um, you also have um, individuals who use power chairs who participate in disability sport as well. And um, sometimes they'll need care assistance. So, a lot of it is based on what disability you have and your level of disability. 
and how much that impacts your ability to be able to do kind of those activities of daily living or competing in sport or whatever it might be that you need assistance with. In this case, what is a power chair? So a power chair is just um, a chair that has a battery on it that um, you don't have to manually push it with your arms. You use a joystick. Um, it's for individuals who either have uh, paralysis in their arms or have such spasticity in their arms that they can't like push a wheelchair efficiently. Mm-hmm. And so what they'll be able to do is they have a chair that's got a battery on it and it's got a joystick and then they can get out and navigate the world in their power chair. Um, to, to gain their independence. Okay. Okay. Now, having been a coach for a while, I'm wondering what positive impacts you think participating in sports uh, specifically has on people with disabilities. Yeah, I think there's tons of positive impacts. I think, you know, whenever you kind of look at sport from a broad perspective, um, you know, the positive impacts that it has on our, you know, stand up and running population that play sport, um, you know, you can see them have the same impact on us. Like it helps to develop confidence. Um, it helps develop a sense of belonging. Um, you know, again, for me, like there was no one else in my town or in my school of my same age that had a disability. And so when I was able to be on a sports team with all people with disabilities, like that was the first time I had ever met anyone where, you know, I shared something in common with them in that way. So I think a sense of belonging and, and being a part of the team or an activity, um, I also think on the other side of it, it's a representation thing, you know, that whole, like, if you can see it, you can be it. If we see other people with disabilities um, playing sport or coaching or being physically active, then we think that that's something that's a possibility for us too. Mm -hmm. So I think when you look at all of the benefits of sport, um, they definitely apply to individuals with disabilities. I think an added benefit is that, um, you know, physical activity is something that is, like we've talked about, is hard to access for disabled individuals. And so when you can become physically active and you can, um, you know, take care of your body and make sure that um, you are being physically active, that's another benefit of that. So, yeah, I could kind of go on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just all the benefits that I've had and, um, social opportunities and meeting new people and um, traveling the world and seeing people who, um, you know, you have to try to build relationships with and friendships, like everything that you would get out of sport, mm-hmm. we get the exact same benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I imagine during your time as a coach, maybe you've encountered a player who's wheelchair using um, or whose disability is more of a new or recent development. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering what kind of what what are kind of common challenges or or realizations or breakthroughs that new users of wheelchairs or, or people who have newly acquired disabilities sometimes face mm-hmm. um, so I think they face the ones that I've worked with and that I've had uh, the opportunity to be a part of their lives at that moment in time you know, a lot of them are facing a reality that they could have never imagined for themselves, right? Like, we always say that, you know, no one ever wants to be a part of the disability community, right? Like, it's not something that you're striving towards. And so when you do become a part of our community, there's this loss of sense of self quite often. Um, And there's this sort of 
you know, reconciliation with what your life is going to look like moving forward and how it's going to be different. And, you know, a lot of times you're thinking of the things that you won't be able to do anymore because if we go back to sort of those media depictions of um, people with disabilities, a lot of times it's shown mostly from a perspective of what we can't do and what's been taken away from us. And so when you're working with someone who's been newly injured, that's generally the mentality that you see is the focus is on what's been taken away, which is completely understandable. I think what sport allows them to do is to, to retell that story to themselves and rewrite that story of, um, okay, well, I used to be a basketball player before I got injured, but now I can play wheelchair basketball. I can be just as physical and just as competitive. I'm just going to have to do it in a little bit different way. I'm doing it from a wheelchair now. Um, you know, I can still drive my car, but I'm just going to have to have it modified a little bit. Or, um, you know, I can still, if getting married and have a fa- having a family is something that I want to do, I can still do that. It just won't look the same as it did before. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it, what sport at times can do is it can provide the, the first step or the first opportunity for them to begin to rewrite that story of what the rest of their lives can be mm-hmm. um, and rewrite it in such a way that um, it's not from a perspective of what you can't do and what's been taken away, mm-hmm. but from a perspective of, okay, this is what I can now do. This is how I can do it. I've got this great community of people around me that's going to help me through it. Um, and so I'll be able to go on and live the life that I you know, want to live. You know, Morgan's one of the few films that I've ever seen that showed a disabled gay athlete or a disabled gay person at all. And, you know, we don't often see media depictions of, 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 of that. And I wonder, why do you think that mm-hmm. is? Well, I think from the disability perspective, um, I think it's because really the trope that we generally see is that disability is a bad thing, right? And that it's negative. And I make the comment all the time, we never see someone in film or in media who has a disability just living their life, right? Where it's not some tragedy associated with it and it's not something to where, you know, they don't want to die at the end or their family feels burdened for having them be a part of the family. We rarely see that. But I think that's just because of the story that we've been told about disability socially, right? That disability is bad and that it's something to be feared and that it's something that is burdensome on the person that is disabled and the people that are around that person. Hmm. I also think that we see those and we hear those stories because you don't have anyone with disabilities making films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right, that whole representation piece, I feel like it's huge. Like when these stories are being told, they're being told from an able-bodied lens, right? Mm-hmm. And so when they're told from that able-bodied perspective, it's going to be laden with those fears of what disability is. Mm-hmm. And so I think, and I'm not sure who the filmmaker was, if he's had ex- he or she has had experience with disability mm-hmm. or not, but um, oftentimes I think that's what it is, is they've had no experience with disability, and so we just automatically approach it from a fear-based perspective and lens. So in the end, I mean, it, it seems that because, um, sorry, let me rephrase this. Um, I'm yeah. Based on your experience, what do you think that could be done to advocate to create a more accessible sports culture uh, for people with disabilities? And, 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 and this includes like what maybe everyday people like me or our listeners uh, could do to kind of help create a more accessible sports culture for people with disabilities. I think the first thing is, like, seeing disability sport is sport, right? I think that's kind of the first step. A lot of times when we introduce disability sport for people, we kind of get that 
you know, reaction of like, oh, that's great. It's good to see that you guys are out competing or, um, you know, well, like, I guess I'm going to take a step back and approach it from this perspective. One of the main uh, comments that we get after anybody has come to see us play um, is that, man, that game was fast and it was physical and you guys can shoot. And I saw this girl hit a three and then I saw this girl like take this huge fall and get back up. And what that always tells me is that, is that there is a very low expectation set for what that sport's going to look like, right? Or what the capabilities of someone who is disabled is. Mm. And so I think what we have to try to do is, is constantly reframe that and reframe wheelchair basketball is just another sport, right? And it's, or wheelchair tennis or racing or rugby or whatever it is. Like they are sports. It's not, you know, yes, people who have disabilities are playing it, but it is sport by and large. Um, we like to look at the wheelchair as a piece of sporting equipment. Um, I think sometimes the stigma around the wheelchair is what prevents kind of your everyday person from understanding that it is, you know, physical, competitive, high level, because there is a stigma around the wheelchair that it's something that you use when you're hurt and it's bad versus it just being a piece of sporting equipment. Mm -hmm. So I think if we begin to just reframe how we see first just people with disabilities in general, we raise the bar of expectation to where we're expecting them to do more than just get out of bed and exist. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to couch that with um, what we have to be careful with within this whole process is that we don't see those disabled people as being the only acceptable disabled people. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there are tons of people with disabilities who – um, they can't play sport for whatever reason, or they have more limiting um, factors around them. And I think what we run the risk of is, like, we see uh, disabled athletes who are out there competing at the Paralympics, and they're held up as the gold standard, mm -hmm. and everything else then is not acceptable, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we have to be careful of that, because there's no one right way to be disabled, just like there's no one right way to be gay. There's mm -hmm. no one right way to be a woman or a man or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so we have to make sure that while we are reframing how we look at disability, that we can't overlook that not everyone's going to fit into these certain, you know, spaces and that that's okay, that they're not any less human or valuable because they don't compete or because, you know, they don't have a super fit body, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so many of the challenges you'd mentioned about disabled athletes facing uh, definitely apply just to the world at large, whether a disabled person is an athlete or not. I'm wondering mm -hmm. what you think everyday able-bodied people can do to help create just a general culture or society that allows not only physical accessibility by disabled people, but also emotional accessibility so that they're mm -hmm. not uh, tokenized or otherized or just kind of treated as an inconvenience. Sure. Great question. I think the first is listen to disabled people. Um, you know, we know our own experiences better than anyone else, and we know our needs better than anyone else. And so I think um, a, a lot of times um, the general able-bodied community thinks they, knows what, they know what's best for the disabled community, and that's not true. Sometimes it is, but on the whole, that's not true. So I would say, one, listen um, to those who are in that community. I would say, two, um, 
surround yourself or, or as much as you can interact with people who have disabilities um, so that you can hear their stories and you can hear about their experiences. Um, and I'm not saying to tokenize them in such a way where it's like, oh, yeah, you know what? I've got that one disabled friend. I know all about disability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, certainly not in that way, but educate yourself in that way to where it's like your understanding of what their issues are and what the stories are and, and why some things are challenging, um, why those barriers exist in society, why we have such low expectations um, for those who are disabled. So I would say listen, educate yourself. There's tons of great resources online to be able to either follow blogs or authors or activists who um, are very open and honest about what the challenges are. Um, And then I would say, you know, be that ally when there's no one else with a disability in the room. Um, Like if, if you're in the room and there's no one there who's visibly disabled, make sure that disability is kind of in the forefront of your mind. Like if you're in a meeting or if you're on a committee or an architect or, um, you know, whatever role you might play, disability and access needs to be at the forefront, right? That it's not just we're going to follow the letter of the law because that's what the ADA tells us. It's that we want to make this an accessible space attitudinally, physically, emotionally, you know, so what do we need to do for that to happen? Fantastic. Um, Yeah, and that's the very last thing is if you are in these positions of power or if you are in a position where, like, you've been brought on a board of directors or you've been put in a position where you have um, decision-making power to bring someone in who is disabled, who is a part of that community, um, to make sure that they have a voice at the table and that their voice is heard, um, to make sure that that board, panel, whatever, doesn't all look the same. Absolutely. We have to put these on uh, the forefront of our thought rather than treating them as an afterthought. So Exactly. Exactly. I think disability kind of gets put there sometimes. I think, you know, we're, we're getting a little bit better, but when we think about diversity, I think a lot of times disability is not something that, that comes into when we think about race and gender and um, uh, sexual orientation. We don't really think about disability in the same way. You can keep up with Wheeler's team on Facebook at Illinois Wheelchair Basketball and on Instagram at I-L-L-I-N-I-W-C-B-B. Wheeler is also on Instagram and Twitter as Steph Wheeler 10 Because a major subplot in the film deals with Morgan's sex life, I spoke with Andrew Gerza, the self-proclaimed disability awareness consultant and queer cripple content creator behind the podcast Disability After Dark, which examines the intersection between sexuality and disability. Gerza was admittedly not a huge fan of the film, so we talked about why, and his feelings about the film's handling of Morgan's sex life as a disabled gay man. Uh, A warning for listeners, the following section includes discussions of sex. You thought this film had several problematic tropes, and you even called it inspiration porn. Uh, What's your definition of inspiration porn, and why why is it a problem? Well, Daniel, inspiration porn is when you... When you do something for the gaze of able-bodied people, and when you when you look at disability through the lens of an able-bodied person, so when a disabled person does something that you do every day, like, I don't know, opens the door and someone goes, good job, good for you, like, that's, you're being inspiration porny, um, stuff like that, just, and so this movie was like, again, 
taking the idea that this athlete had an accident and he has to overcome all these things and it just felt really that's where I feel like the inspiration porn part of it came in into play it really made his disability like this big deal and this big scary thing when really he was just a disabled guy trying to get laid well I mean so wait, wait a minute I mean I, I guess to this degree I'm wondering if in, if avoiding inspiration porn is even possible just because I mean like people do go through accidents that give them disabilities and they do have to contend with the reality of that. that's some of what this movie is but getting why, at but also with this with this movie why does every, why does every disabled film have to be that why does every film we see around disability have to be, oh no, the once normal athlete now is disabled and oh goodness, the tragedy. That's where the, that's where the inspirational important stuff comes in. So, watching as a disabled person, how did you find the film's portrayal of relationships and sex? Yeah, some of those conversations were real. Like, do you, the conversation of, is my wheelchair too much for you? That's very real. Um, I just felt like the way it was portrayed just was very quick. Like, them going on a date the next day would never happen. Them them moving in with each other within the first 20 minutes of the movie and calling their home their home was like, that's just not realistic. Like, it doesn't take into account the fact that if he was to move in with somebody, he would lose his benefits. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't take in a lot of that romantical idea of, like, romance that they were trying to put in there, which I felt like was very slapstick and they threw it in. I felt like they didn't take into account the, re- the reality of disability. They were trying to tell a story without any real lived experience to back it up and that's why I had a problem with it. Even though the co-writer interviewed gay male wheelchair users to create the script, you still thought the film could have benefited from having a director and actors with real life disabilities. Why do you think that would have made a difference? Well, look at the opening scene in the film. The opening scene in the film was the, the actor li- sitting in his bed and the, they, shoot, they pan down from his legs to like his chair like oh no the tragedy a disabled director might not have done that like there could have been some shots that weren't based around oh no he's disabled and can't go out the the scene where he and his partner are walking and like going through the the woods together and then they get to the stairs like that was shot so deliberately to be like oh no stairs like maybe a disabled director wouldn't have done that so I just think a disabled person behind the camera would have given it a different vantage point that able-bodied people aren't quite ready for. Because again, this director, sure, he interviewed some disabled people, that's nice, but why didn't you hire some? Sure, you interviewed some, did you pay them? Probably not. Did you see if they had any acting ability? Probably not. So you could have used a disabled actor and figured it out, but you chose not to because you wanted to, again, build the story on a tragic, oh no, your life is so hard now, and now you overcome because you found love. Like, no. Talking to you and other people with disabilities, I know that isolation, rejection, and accessibility are real issues, and it seems that any film about disabilities might end up covering those, but is there a way that they can do that without being, as you put it, about the tragedy of disabilities? Don't put, like, sad, saccharine music underneath it, and don't make it like, oh no, the tragedy! Like, why can't we just talk about that stuff for what it is? Why can't we have a character say, like, yeah, my housing situation is crappy because... If I move in with you, I'm going to lose my benefits. Like, I would die to see that in a romantic comedy about disabilities. Like, hey, you're really hot, and I'd love to, like, be your live-in partner, except that if I do that with you, I'm going to lose all my money. Like, that's, that's, a, there are, there are tropes that, of comedy and, like, like, drama that can be used to make it less about disability and more about just the reality of being disabled without it being like, oh, no, your disability makes things so hard. Well, let's get back to the sex subplot. Since Morgan's paraplegic, so much of the film focuses on whether he can have sex or whether his genitals even work. 
Is that offensive or realistic or maybe a little of both? I have cerebral palsy and I was born with this disability, so I'm speaking at this from a different vantage point. And there are parts of it that are realistic. He was paralyzed. He does have an injury that could affect how his genitals work, but it didn't need to be so like, oh no, can I get it up? Like, what if we had a sex scene where his, where his penis and penetration wasn't the focal point of the thing? Maybe they get off through different kinds of touch. All those scenes where he'd be like going to his physio and going to his doctor and asking him like, you can get it up. Okay, I can tell you as a disabled person, that doesn't happen. I don't go to my doctor. Even if I want to ask those questions, you don't do that because you're so afraid. You wouldn't do that to your doctor. Um, but I do think the conversations they were trying to have were realistic, but, or that's not, they were trying to make it realistic. They didn't do a good enough job because they could have had sex without without the need for penetration. I have sex oftentimes without needing to be penetrated or penetrating somebody. I get off and enjoy myself quite well without needing that. So they could have really looked at the sex scene as a way to show disabled sex through a different lens and unfortunately they didn't do that here. Also that really speaks to a lot of toxic masculinity that we have been taught in our, especially in queer male society. Like if you can't get it up and if you couldn't get it up, it doesn't mean he's not deserving of a positive sexual experience and the film could have addressed that in a totally different way he maybe he couldn't get it up and that's fine his partner could have said i don't care if you can't get it up i'm still gonna find ways to make you feel good like that would have been a huge shift that they didn't do they wanted to again address the fact that his partner saved him from a sad disabled life and helped him have sex again like fuck off it struck me watching this film that this was one of the first and only depictions of a disabled gay guy getting it on that I've ever seen. It's, it's one of very few depictions, especially of queer male sex and disability. I mean, disabilities waxed and waned over the last couple of years. Like, there's more stuff coming out there. Like, there's that, that show special that's out there right now, which I think is really good. Like, I, and I love that show because that's, that's his experience. He's not a wheelchair user. His disabilities are completely different but he's that's on a that's on a huge network that's on Netflix like that's a giant step forward even if people didn't like that show it's a big deal what's his disability in that show can you remind me super palsy so he has the same disability as I do just varying degrees so um, but I think that I love that show because it's like he was trying something completely different and he created a character that wasn't likable that wasn't even necessarily I don't like that character but I like the characters on TV it was, I, I think it's really important and I hope, I hope, so hope that the show gets a season two because these are stories we need to hear. We need to see disabled characters that are not the greatest and this character he's created, which is loosely based off him, uh, you know, when he was going through all this stuff. And I've said this to him, Ryan O'Connell and I are friends, I've said this to him, like, your character's not great, but that's great because he's, we don't, immediately ascribed to him like, oh, he's so positive. Oh, good for him. He's kind of an asshole and that's all right. If you want to follow Gerza's work, you should visit andrewgerza.com, download his podcast, Disability After Dark, or follow him on social media at TheAndrewGerza. That's it for today's episode. I'd love to thank my guests. The opening theme came from bensound.com and audio from Morgan was taken from the film, which is currently available for rent on YouTube. I'm Daniel Villarreal and this has been Extra Points. We hope you'll join us for the next installment. Until then.